Welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Did I tell you that I've got a new book out? No? Well, I'm sorry about that. Lost Lanes, Wales, 36 Glorious Bike Rides in Wales and the Borders, is the second in my series of guidebooks to the very best places to ride a bike in the British Isles. This volume covers Wales and the border counties of Cheshire, Shropshire and Herefordshire and a little corner of Western Gloucestershire. It's very much the same idea as the first volume of Lost Lanes, which covered London and southern England. A collection of beautiful bike rides, lots of gorgeous landscape photography, plenty of information about interesting places you'll pass along the way, and all the practical information you'll need, from maps, turn-by-turn directions, to GPS files for your GPS devices and smartphones, as well as listings of places to eat, drink, and stay overnight. If you want to get to know Wales and the Borders as a place to ride your bike, I don't think there's a better book. And there really is just a huge amount of great riding to be had in this part of the world. You know, I was very proud of Lost Lanes, southern England, and it's a beautiful part of the country. But Wales, well, it's literally another country. Um, and, and in terms of landscape, it's just much more uh, varied and much more spectacular. Some real mountains here, um, some gorgeous beaches, huge forests, lakes, and all the lovely farmland of the borders and, and the lowlands too. It's a stunning place to explore by bike. If you've already bought the book, thank you. I hope you like it. And if you do like it, please tell your friends and maybe even leave a review on Amazon. That always helps. If you'd like to buy a copy from me, and that certainly helps me more than if you buy one from the bookshop, then you can order signed copies from the Bike Show website, thebikeshow.net. Now, this book has another stunning cover by Andrew Pavitt, the artist and illustrator, and we have another limited edition art print signed by Andrew, and you can find out more about that on the website as well. Well, that's the commercial over. Lost Lanes, 36 Glorious Bike Rides in Wales and the Borders published by Wild Things Publishing. So from cycling in Wales to cyclists of Wales, and not just any cyclist of Wales, but probably the most famous and celebrated of Wales's many great bike racers, Geraint Thomas, double Olympic gold medalist, Commonwealth Games road race champion, former national road race champion, and a founder member, and increasingly a star rider in Team Sky. Today's podcast features an edited recording of an on-stage conversation I had with Geraint a few weeks ago at an event where he was promoting his new book, an autobiography and a kind of insider's guide to the world of cycling, The World of Cycling According to G. I was delighted to be asked to put the questions because Geraint Thomas is one of the cyclists I always look out for when I'm watching big bike races. Partly it's because he's so easy to spot with his big white oakley sunglasses and shaggy mane of dark hair. But it's also because he's an exciting rider, someone who always gives his all and is willing to take chances to go for the win. The 2015 season was a remarkable one for Geraint Thomas with um, strong showings in the early part of the season, um, including the Spring Classics where he won the E3 Harold Becker and then a huge performance at the Tour de France which saw him transformed from a sturdy classics rider into a, uh, a mountain goat climbing alongside the very best 
riders in the Tour de France. The event was organised by the excellent Rossiter's Bookshop in ross on wye and it began with Geraint revealing that he was something of a reluctant author. I didn't grow up thinking I want to write a book, you know. I just wanted to win bike races and, you know, English was kind of a subject that, you know, kind of, well, you had to do, didn't you? And I, t- I tried to do my best and whatever, but... And I've been asked, you know, in the past, even as early as, like, you know, 2011, 2012, or, you know, will you do this book, etc., etc. And I was like, well, no, I, d- I don't want to do it. I, you know, I don't have a... Uh, x-factor story upbringing you know it was just a normal nice childhood in cardiff you know and i haven't got like the froomey sort of you know chased by hippos or <laughs> locked in a pen of ostriches by my brother you know it was just sort of walk to school and you might run away from a cat or something but i, I never wanted to do it and then i was speaking to tom fordyce who kindly helped did a lot of work for me in writing it and uh him and my agent, and they came up with this idea of, you know, a sort of a breakdown of cycling, pretty much. Uh, different chapters on, on, you know, Italy, climbing, Belgium, you know, different races, different characters, so like Cav and Brad. Just the broad spectrum of cycling, but every chapter being just, you know, short and punchy. You know, it's fun as well. It's not like, you know, some dark book about, you know, trying to convince people, like... I don't know, just talking dark stuff. You always speak your mind. I get that impression from you in the sort of post-race interviews when I imagine you're absolutely shattered and the last thing you want to do is have Ned Bolting bouncing around, shoving a (laughs) microphone in your face. But you always come up with something interesting about the race, something entertaining, something that makes people warm to you as a person and that really comes through in the book. I always try to just just say how it is, really, for me and not get too, like, you know, too PC or... You know, not be too sort of robotic. Who, who follows Geraint on on Twitter? Hands up, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we need a few more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you need to do better. Geraint Thomas, eighty yeah, six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a list of um, of uh, Wales's two hundred and fifty uh, most influential tweeters. Were you in that? Were you in that list? I oh, saw that, it? and I did look. Were you there? No. no we, we've got to fix that. <laughs> we've got to fix that right here tonight. But if you do follow. Geraint on, uh, on Twitter, you'll know that pretty much every other tweet or every third tweet is something about him being hungry. Um, <laughs> and, and often it's directed to his particular object of desire, which is the Welsh cake. And there is a recipe for Welsh cakes, handwritten in, in, in the book. But um, because it's, you know, it's only a matter of hours before you go back into your monk-like regime of, of training, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute, you've you really got to make this count these last few hours. So I want to invite on the stage... And the chairman of our road club, um, Abergavenny Road Club, Owen oh, Davis. Right. You could call him <laughs> O. Um, and he has got, he's got some, um, some Welsh Lovely. cakes here, just to make you feel at home. And, um, so, o- Owen, who made these Welsh cakes? Uh, uh, my little daughter, uh, 10-year-old Caris, made these. And uh, my great-grand's um, griddle, 100 years old. So, cracking oh. Welsh cakes. We, sm- we smuggle them across the border. As long um, as she washed her hands. <laughs> No, I'm going to have one now. Yeah, Is that all right? Yeah, please. No, they're, they're for you. They're been, for you. I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a polite man, so I can't talk with my mouth full. Have a bite and, uh, and, and, and get back to it. Your book isn't big on childhood, as, uh, childhood, as, as you said, but it is interesting to learn how people who, who've made it to the top of the sport got into the sport in the first place. And in my experience of interviewing 
top cyclists and, and, and reading their autobiographies and biographies, a lot of the time it seems as though they got into cycling because they had two left feet, they, they had no hand-eye coordination, couldn't catch a ball, and, and cycling was the sport, you know, the only sport they could do and stick the guy on a bike, God, we might be able to do something. But you, you, I get the impression from you that you were one of these infuriating I was na- natural sportsmen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was good. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. George North's a lucky man. <laughs> no, I, I did a lot of sports. I, I was swimming a lot. That's how I got into cycling. Um, I was going, I went to Mainly Leisure Centre to go swimming and Saw an advert about the Mainly Flyers uh, kids club that had just started. It was an outdoor track there, a big 450-odd metre concrete thing. So that's what got me into cycling. But yeah, as a kid, I did. But, but what, was the, what was the motivation? You, so you were swimming. Because cycling is niche now, mm. right? But it was weird yeah. back then, right? <laughs> it was. But uh, I guess I was a bit weird as well, Ember. Any sort of sport I just wanted to do and enjoyed, you know, School sports day was always like really looking forward to that. Football played that in, in the local cub team and like you know a little local team and played rugby for the school till you know I stopped about year nine when everyone started really growing. I just wanted to to have a go at everything really. And was there a moment when it kind of dawned on you that you were really quite good at this cycling thing? I was always sort of winning a bit of pocket money on weekends and stuff, and and that's why I stop rugby to be honest as well as they were all growing it was sort of wow I can win a bit like 50 quid on a Saturday you know may as well keep doing this and swimming they wanted me to start to go before school and I was sod that (laughs) sorry I was stuff that it wasn't until I was a junior though when I believed I could actually make a job out of it but yeah I always sort of knew I was handy at it and so what was the environment around you like kind of supporting you as you made that that sort of transition into taking it seriously. Did you, were you, did you have parents supporting you and clubs and individuals that you, you, you think are particularly valuable? And, and if there are parents in, in, in the room today with kids who are thinking about you know, maybe taking up cycling and, and or, may, or maybe are quite good at it, what would, what would your advice be to think, them and based on your own experiences? I think uh, my mum and dad were, were amazing. You know, my dad, he... He was just constantly holding me back and stopping me doing too much. Um, there was a point where I was just continually, like, at the time I didn't see it, but when you look back, I was continually tired and, you know, you, you just, I was just doing way too much. Like, and he was really holding me back and saying, oh, no, don't go to that tonight or whatever. And at the time I was getting, like, frustrated. And, but, you know, and there was no pressure. It was always just go out there and do your best and uh, have fun, and, and that's really all it was. And, and then once I was a junior, my dad sort of, uh, he, he was speaking to Darren Tudor, who was the Welsh coach at the time, and he was like, oh, can you sort of help him out? But up until that point, it was just all about fun and just doing it. And, and then you were one of the early members of the British Cycling Academy up in Manchester. I mean, that must have been a big leap to make and it was like initially you didn't you say you say initially it was like Shane Sutton was saying no no don't go and then he was like no no do go so how yeah. did that ha- all happen it was sort of um when it, it was around March time or something and Shane's like oh mate you don't want to go this you don't want to go there mate he's Australian that's my best Aussie accent <laughs> he's like yeah you don't want to go there you just get out into Europe you know get a good team there and you know get so on. what age were you this was this like point, 18 18 um yeah. well 17 turning 18 yeah. about to go under 23 the academy had only just started and it was a bit all over the place then and literally maybe 
three, four months later, he's like, no, no, you got to go on it. It's, it's great. You know, the boys are doing really well, blah, blah, blah. So I really respected him and, and my dad obviously did as well. And he, he, we went down that route and went up to Manchester and we were based in Fallowfield, which was the, the student area. And obviously I was a fresher, but I wasn't in uni. I was on the academy and it was the worst place to put us because, you know, we were young and Welsh and liked a good drink and it was uh, it was certainly uh, hard because you know we were training we were training hard but then Rod Allenworth our coach was it was just about it was about life not just uh, riding a bike you know it was hygiene it was organisation it was just everything you know and, and for sure that's always stayed with me and uh, you can tell all the academy guys now you know Carved Swifty Stannard we're all sort of Without knowing it, um, I think Rod sort of really instilled in us a real good way of, of working. It was quite disciplined, it sounded like. Massively disciplined, yeah. It was, yeah, he, he'd be outside our houses at 7.30, making sure we were leaving on time. Um, you know, he'd, make, he'd purposely make it hard. Um, he'd want to, like, crack people uh, and then see if they still want to do it. And at the time, we hated him. You know, we called him everything under the sun when he wasn't there. So, I mean, he did start out on the track... And went on to become a member of this all-beating, record-breaking team pursuit team, which it's, it's, it's a phenomenal thing to watch. It must be extraordinary to be inside. I mean, how do you put that robotic kind of team? Because, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be mean calling it robotic, because you call it that yourself in the book, that when it's going really well, it's like a, it's like a rowing crew. It looks like it's one thing that's just doing its thing. Yeah. And, 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 but it's actually for four guys in a race yeah without a doubt in like an olympic final when it's all it all goes um to plan there's nothing better it's 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 immense but it's getting to that point which is the hard bit it's all those session after session drill after drill you got to live in manchester (laughs) which which is all right but it rains a lot and you know it's away from home and you know you're in the velodrome like four or five times a week it's pretty monotonous and, you know, it's, it's the same guys all around. And, you know, even though you get on, it's still a lot of time to spend with people. And um, it's tough. And, and, you know, it's like I say, it's the same sort of drills. Whereas, you know, the road, there's so much variety. Around the next corner, yeah. it could be anything. Because it looks very simple. It looks very simple. But it takes you years to oh, get yeah. to that level. Yeah. So what are you, what are you doing? What, are, what, are the, what, are you, what have you got to achieve? What are the big, what's the big challenge you've got to achieve to produce that? that performance it's the day after day all those drills i guess it's like it's so precise like you, you break down every effort you get the bar the bar chart and you say oh yeah look you dropped off a bit here and when you actually figure it out it's like 0.05 of a second and you're all getting upset that you know you've come off it that much and and it's it, you go home and you think about that and you're like oh you know i didn't have the best session today and because the squad's so strong you're like am i going to keep my place and and that's what pushed us all on, but it was just like so intense. And um, I say in the book, actually, that's what is so impressive about Chris Hoy is the way that he did that. But he did it from like 2000 or before 2000 all the way through to London. And I'd never be able to do that. No chance. And so did, did you see your time on the track and, and your, you know, the great success you had as an opening chapter that was gonna, you were going to go onto the road? Every kid dreams of riding the tour and, and going as far on the road as you can. And, but also, I, I really wanted that Olympic medal. And 
luckily, fortunately enough, it all happened really early and I won it in Beijing. And, and then obviously London was next and I really wanted to win a medal at the Home Olympics. So it was like, okay, I'm going to go to London. And after that, it's all about the road. So yeah, London sort of put a full stop at the end of my, well, maybe not full stop, maybe... Uh, semicolon. A semicolon. Something like that. A dash, I don't know. Yeah, Three yeah. dots. A dot, dot, continued. dot. So, uh, yeah, so then it's like, right, let's go on the road now and commit to that fully. Um, and, yeah, see how far we can take that. Because it's, I mean, it's a big difference for, for an outsider to think from this four-minute event, what, 3.51? Point, yeah. Point. I think it's six, but then I... Th- <laughs> yeah, we'll go with six. Yeah. Um, to, to, to a six hours... You know, over mountains and mm. through the rain, over cobbles. I mean, that does seem like two different sports to me. Yeah, and it's definitely going more that way. It's, it's getting, you know, really big gears. Like, the start is, is super important, and you need to really be quite strong upper body, to, and you need to be able to start fast and punchy. And so it's certainly, yeah, you, you can't just suddenly... You can't ride the Tour de France, and then two weeks later go and ride the Olympic final in Team Pursuit. It's just, it just takes a lot more uh, commitment than that. But you did... in. 2007 ride the Tour de France as a mm. as essentially a pursuiter with Barla World you, you planned to do a week and then yeah. clear off but you stayed the course which was a great indication of what was what was to come but but that must have been some kind of baptism of fire right yeah without a doubt it was the most I've ever suffered mentally and physically <laughs> every day was just full on it was like oh it was unreal it was horrible but You'd start the stage and you'd be swinging at the back. You'd be on your own. You're going up, dreading every climb. Even a fourth cat climb, it was you were dreading them. And you'd get through it. You get on the bus. You'd just be like, "There's no chance I'm starting tomorrow." You'd just be like, oh, "I am completely uh, spent." <laughs> 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 I nearly slipped up nicely, there. Nicely, um, And then you you go back. You get a massage. You eat. You go to bed. You wake up in the morning and you're like, "Well." I'm here, so I may as well start. <laughs> and then the whole cycle starts again. So, and then I ended up making it to Paris, and it was just an unbelievable feeling to do that. And um, I'm really glad that I did stay the course because there was quite a few guys saying, "Oh, you should go home. You're too young." But it certainly uh, learned a hell of a lot there. No lasting damage. Not no, that you can tell. No. Not I can tell. No. <laughs> 2007. That's that's like a long time ago in cycling, and that tour was a pretty dark tour mm. for. Lots of, well for the for the reasons of, of doping basically with Michael Rasmussen being thrown off Astana had been banned from the, the tour before I think even Eddie Merck said that he was close to giving up on cycling um, as as a sport which uh, tells you something what was going on going on in your mind I mean you had plenty of time to think while while you were suffering were you thinking am I ever going to be able to make it at this game or were you thinking why are those cheating bastards cheating and why is nobody throwing them off the race I was just remember getting back and just being like man I don't even know how you can try and win this race I'm just just trying to finish it like each day and um you know and then obviously every, all of that was going on and it's like I'm like struggling to finish because these guys are like who knows what they're doing and you know they're making it even harder and etc etc but the fact that they were catching them was to me that was you know and they were the guys at the top they were like you know Rasmussen I think he was even in the yellow jersey when he got kicked out, and yeah, but he was never—he was never properly caught in like mm. dope testing, was he? He was—he was some whereabouts thing during yeah, his training, yeah, yeah. and his team threw him off. Yeah, so it was sort of 
it didn't fill you with confidence that they hadn't got a like a test result and yeah, yeah. everyone was everyone yeah. was assuming you know and all the journalists were assuming very few people were saying it out mm. loud it, it did feel like it wasn't people weren't being caught but you felt that they were it seemed to me anyway that they were they were out to try and stop them and um and they certainly were because now the thing that made me fully commit onto the road was the fact that Brad won those Olympic uh those uh Tour de France sorry in 2012 you know I bet well all the money I have that he did it the right way um and that's what made me believe well yeah go commit on the road and see what you you, can do you have a faster um individual pursuit time than Bradley does I believe yeah, well, remind everybody of that. I think <laughs> he was. Uh, I think he's, he's. I think he's gone faster than me. Has he gone since? Oh. Yep. But actually, no. No, I don't think oh, so. Oh, from the World Cup, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Should have put that in the book. <laughs> second edition. There's always a second edition. Balls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have. I'm faster than Brad. <laughs> 2010, Team Sky. You say in the book that, that it, it felt like a natural evolution of what you were doing in Manchester and, and, and the GB team into a road racing team. I mean, that, that's just worked out perfectly for you. Yeah, it was, you know, the fact I was involved in British cycling, really, you know, going back to the whole, the dark days, really, you know, I always had British cycling behind me to go back to on the track. And, and then, yeah, obviously Sky Game on board and then, you know, the track success really created that boom in the UK and then it just spread onto the road and, Obviously, Cap was doing what he was doing, and, and Brad, and it was um, just that natural progression. And then for me, I was really lucky that I am at the age I am, really, and really benefited from that. And it's just been great, really. But the, in those early days of Team Sky, there was a big fanfare, big budget, lot of lot of talk. There was a lot of talk, a lot of ambitious goals, and a lot of people were thinking, well, are "These guys just going to fall flat on their faces." Mm. Um, what was that early phase like? Was there a lot of pressure? Did you feel that, like, you were riding for a fall, maybe? You know, when Dave obviously said he wants to win the Tour within five years with a British guy, you know, and British cycling wasn't... Well, we hadn't really done much on the road to that point. Brad was fourth in 2009, but, you know, I think a lot of people... I think it sort of rubbed them up the wrong way, and I think, you know, we were a new team, doing new stuff, you know, wearing skin suits, filled in helmets, warming down which is like the norm now. And, you know, back then people were taking the mick as we were warming down. And it's like, what, you know, why wouldn't you warm down? It's, yeah, anyway, I think people were just sort of like, this is our sport and, and who do these guys think they are? And it, it was tough at start. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, people don't like change, like just in general, you know, if, if they close down your local Tesco or whatever and you got to go to like, you know, Morrison's or something, everyone's be like, oh God, you know. <laughs> but... Nobody, nobody really likes change. So, and I think we were sort of coming into their sport in a way and, and trying to do things because a lot of people were old school. So, so in, in in the Tour de France of 2010, stage three, you know, you're up there in the elite group. You're second, aren't you, to Tour Hushoft in that stage? Yeah. Finishing with Cadel Evans, Fabian Cancellara, Andy Schleck. What was that feeling like? Was that when you felt like? Here I am. I've arrived. Yeah, that was incredible. Or were you thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> a bit of both, to be honest. It was, it, was, it was crazy. I remember being on the cobbles and I was maybe third or second wheel and I could hear the helicopter like up in, up in the skies and you know all the crowd were going crazy and the motorbike was sort of alongside us and I think I was on Tor's wheel and I was kind of like, wow, this is, this is immense. You know, I had the National Champs jersey on, 
and it was in incredible. And then finished the stage, um, rode to the best. And then Fran Miller, who works for the team, was oh no, you got to go to the podium. You got the white jersey, and it was just like wow. And then suddenly you're on the podium, and the camera's there, and you know you're getting the podium. You go and shake the hands. Of, you know, there's four four like you know, politicians or whatever, or guests of, like, you know, VIPs, and you go shake their hands, and then you go to the back, and it's, you know, it's stuff that I was grown up watching since I was, you know, 12, 13 on the TV, and suddenly it was me doing it, and it was amazing. Even so, that was a great moment for you, but the, the season didn't work out as planned, and in, in the book you say that the real change that happened in Sky was a res as a result of what Bradley Wiggins did to win the the Tour de France in 2012, which started immediately after the, the disappointment. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, um, for him, 2010 was a, a massive sort of disappointment, a big flop. Yeah, then he just committed 100%. He, he lived like a monk. It was unbelievable. It, it was as if you could write a computer program. This is what you've got, got to do to win the Tour. You've got to do this session, this cadence. You know, you've got to go to Tenerife for this many days, eat this, drink that. And then you'll win the tour. And he basically went away and just did everything to the to the letter. You know, knew exactly why he was what he was doing, why he was doing it, and and obviously it paid off. But so where did that playbook come from? Was that from him, or was that from the coaches? Or it was more the coaches, like Tim Carrison and Shane Sutton. You know, Tim was the sort of the brains, and and Shane was certainly the brawn. And Shane was like, you know, the he was old school, and but he could really understand and he could read the riders like emotionally. And whereas Tim was like a, he was just like a computer, you know, he'd see you as like a, you were just a thing, you know, that he just told, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be fine. So both of them working together worked really well. Is that still how it's done in, in Team Sky with the, yeah, those two approaches of, I don't know, head and the heart? Is that the way? I don't know. Yeah, how, yeah, how I think, uh, to be fair, Shane does ease with British cycling now fully, but um, Tim certainly sort of sees that now. He sees the other side and um, he's just purely just Tim that's my coach now but um, it's certainly a two-way thing between me and him anyway it's not he doesn't tell me do this do this do this it's more of a discussion of what I think I need and he either agrees or you know changes it slightly and so I think that way as well you sort of really buy into it and you really you know because if you sit down and you say this is what I think I need to do to, to win the tour or you know a classic you're going to go and do it or you're going to certainly believe in it and, and push yourself to the limits to do it and the weight loss, I mean, because that is a fact of life in contemporary cycling. I mean, that, and, and you're always talking about how hungry you are and, and, and how, you know, I think you were, you were on the radio the other day saying, you know, you feel guilty about eating an apple when you're yeah. training and that kind of thing, which is, well, have another Welsh cake, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's only, only four hours to go. Yeah, make but, uh, Riders have never looked as, as thin as they do today. And... Um, I mean, I'm wondering if that's something that, that worries you. I mean, maybe not so much about yourself because you're in the care of, of nutritionists, doctors, coaches. You're very experienced yourself. But for younger riders and aspiring elite athletes, that, that, that there's so much talk about this weight loss thing. Is there a risk that cycling is going to end up like ballet? Eating disorders are, are kind of endemic in, in, in ballet. And, yeah. and, and you're going to get the same thing in cycling. Does that... Is that yeah, definitely. Like, I'm certainly mindful about. Obviously, I, I talk about it much more than I thought I did. But um, <laughs> basically, our world does revolve around not trying to eat, basically, um, and and trying to get lean. Obviously, for the tour, for me, it's, it's a real struggle to. You know, I, my body naturally likes to be around sort of 72, and for the tour, you got to try and really get super skinny, so you know, around 68. And 
it's a massive sort of struggle. You've got to really fight it and it's hard work. And you don't, you don't starve yourself because you need to keep maintaining your power as well. It's not just don't eat and just ride your bike. You know, it's, it's a clever way of doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's the protein and the type of food you eat. And it's not that you just sit there and, you know, just don't eat at all. But, um, yeah, I'm certainly mindful when it comes to, you know, talking about, you know, being hungry or not having breakfast before a ride. Because we do do that, but it's not every day. And, you know, a young guy might be thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, it could be dangerous, I guess, yeah. And there's a chapter in, in your book about form, which, which is really interesting. And, and it does seem like, I mean, all cyclists talk about form and commentators talk about form and journalists talk about, oh, he's coming into a bit of form or he's got good form. And half the time I think they don't know what they're talking about. The only person knows what they're talking about is the rider themselves. If, what is form and what does it feel like and how do you get it and, and how I does it disappear? It's as much mental as it is physical, I think, form. It's um, when you believe you're good and, you know, when you feel like, going back to weight again, but when you feel lean and you feel, you know, I'm sure like a lot of people here have ridden their bikes and when you look down and your legs seem quite, you know, they, sometimes they can feel bloated, sometimes you can feel skinny and, and strong and, you feel like that, and then obviously you look down, and the numbers say, I don't know, usually say threshold for argument's sake, 400. And, and you look down, you're doing 400, you're like, whoa, I thought I was doing three, sort of thing. And um, and we talk about maintaining form is for me, from February this year all the way through till, well, maybe three days to the end of the tour, I felt pretty good. And um, I think it's, it's how you are off the bike as much as what you do on it. Um, you know, if you eat well, if you sleep well, you rest well, and you train hard, and, and but everything else off the bike is good, then you can sort of maintain it a long time. And so, so things like if you've got some sort of disturbance in your personal life or some situation outside racing, that can affect your, your form, can it? Yeah, for sure, because mentally, you know, your mind's in a different place. And, you know, sometimes you can use that in the right way, and, you know, it, you can still go well. But I think it's more of a, of a lottery if you do go well or not. I think... Uh, when, it, when there's, everything's consistent, your performance is a lot more consistent as well. And if I read it right, it seems like it's something that can come and go in a matter of hours. Your Commonwealth Road Race 2014, you're at the beginning saying, oh, no, I'm feeling terrible, and then you go and win it. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, certainly a surreal day. Um, you know, because I went to the Games thinking, you know, I just want to go and represent Wales and, and give it everything but and try and do Wales proud, but it, I didn't really have any expectations. You know, I just finished the tour. I was on my knees. I was tired. Um, so, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. And I started that race and it was just terrible. And I remember saying to Luke, look, you know, do your own thing, you know, chance, chance your arm a bit, you know, I don't know how I'm going to feel. And then suddenly you got to about 40 k to go. Sandbagging your own teammate, is that? Is that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting one there. Yeah. So, but it was like 40 k to go. Suddenly... I didn't feel any better. I think everyone just suddenly felt worse. And, but I was just staying at the same sort of... Well, it was, I felt average, but it was still pretty good. And, uh, yeah, it, 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 just, like, it just clicked. And then suddenly you look around and everyone looks really tired and you kind of think, oh, I'm not so bad. And you attack and then you, obviously, you get a gap and it's nice. And then you punch her. And I think some guy who's actually a baker tries to change a wheel. <laughs> and, and then, luckily, the, the guys didn't catch me. And, and yeah, it was one, and it was immense. Yeah, it was an immense, it was an immense race to watch. That was an absolute thriller. Um, as well as a chapter on form, there's a chapter on the, on the bonk. Um, and we've got so many names for it. The hunger knock or the man with the hammer coming and paying you a visit. Um, 
And you had you had a, actually had a great quote after that um, stage 19 of the of the <laughs> tour this year, where you said sometimes you're the hammer, and sometimes you're the nail. And what did you say? I'm the, the cheap IKEA nail. <laughs> cheapest, nastiest nail from IKEA. <laughs> I won't be getting a deal from them. <laughs> no, I was thinking the same. Like it's like burning a few bridges there. Well, you know, these days I think it's um, I think it's um, heels or nothing. Um, but um, that must have been heartbreaking. I mean, you're in fourth place in GC stage 19 you know you can see the outskirts of Paris mentally if not physically on the mountains um and you lost 22 minutes I mean it was terrible um that morning I kind of knew it was going to happen in a way it was I thought it was going to happen a lot sooner to be honest and I, I never expected to be in that position um I was a kilo and a half lighter that morning uh, than I was the previous day so I knew I was depleted and you try and eat more and you try to fuel but you know, we kind of fighting a losing battle, and then as soon as it went, as soon as the starter hit the front and went, that was it. Just had nothing there, and um, it was kind of so long to go as well. Such so as it was only the first climb of the day, maybe, and I think there was a couple more after, and I knew it was over. So it was sort of just just take it as easy as possible and try and do a better job the next day for the team. And right. but yeah, it was it was depressing. It wasn't nice because <laughs> you you don't see. Um, I mean, unless they're doing gratuitous shots. Of, um, of whoever's um, out out the back, they, you, that's something that you don't see, and there's a lot of else that you don't see on, on the television on on a bike race. And just some of the best descriptions that I've read of what goes on in a bike race from the inside um, that you know that I've ever read. So congratulations on on that because they're, they're terrific and really interesting, and especially things that the commentators will never mention. I mean, their commentators. I don't know. I don't know. I think they need they're to bring a, a new yeah. regime of commentators. They had, did have David Miller in for a, a little bit, and, and he seemed to be able mm. to read things a little bit better. I mean, clearly you can't tell exactly what's going on unless you're actually there. But the start of the, start of the race, the early hours before the TV coverage even switches on, I mean, that's the majority of the time, that's the actual race, you know, it's, it's, especially in the stage of the tour where it's likely to be a breakaway the race is the first two hours and it's to get in that break and um, yeah, it, that's some of the hardest racing because, you know, for Cav and that, that's their race. That first two hours is Cav's race and he's got to hang in, be in the peloton there and uh, once the break's gone and it settles down, he knows he's finished the stage end because all he's got to do is, well, all he's got to do, but he's got to get to the final climb and, you know, the GC guys race and then he just gets in within the time limit. So, yeah, a lot goes, a lot happens in that first part of the race. I mean, how do those breaks form and what makes a break stick? Oh, it's uh, this is probably the longest, one of the longest chapters actually, and probably the one that gets into the most detail. And it's another thing with the book is kind of there's something for the real hardcore amateur who who wants to find out what it's like to ride an echelon or how the brake forms. And then it, you know, there's other bits about just riding up a hill and what I think, and it's probably the same as what you probably think. But obviously, my climbs up to where yours might be. I don't want to insult you now, but maybe the tumble. The tumble, that's still a tough climb. There so. we go. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the break forming, it, it's just so much going on. It, it, there's a lot that depends on it is um, the terrain for a start, who wants to be in the break, if, what the stage is likely to be, if it's a sprint stage, if it's a mountain, or you know, if the break's likely to succeed, what team's in control. Um, if it's us, you know, we're happy for the break to go. Everybody knows that. We're happy to let a big break go. Everybody knows that. So it could be, you know, 20 guys up the road. But then, obviously, it's tough because somebody, you know, 5th to 10th on GC may slip away, and that's dangerous. So there's a hell of a lot that comes into to how, a, how a breakaway forms. And what you describe really well is this process of catching the break or trying to catch the break at just the right moment. And you say that, 
you don't want to catch them too soon because then there'll be another break and mm. then the race becomes more complicated again and you have a fresher break because there'll be riders that haven't been in the first in the in the first one or the one that the one that's stuck but then you don't want to leave it too late because you're not going to win the stage if yeah. you're a sprint team how are you doing that how are you judging that yeah, to catch them just at the right time so you can get the lead outs and it's a, it's a massive up? game of chess it's um so for instance say it's a it's a sprint stage and we've got the jersey sky and we're riding we don't want to let them get too far because then the sprinters teams you know might get annoyed with us and you know okay we're not going to ride then you've got to ride all day but then we don't want to keep them too close because then they're like well yeah that breaks close enough we don't we don't have to come yet we'll wait another 50k so you want it to be just that sort of right distance um, then once they come they play a bit of chess amongst themselves then so Cav will put somebody up and then you know Gripe will be like oh, I don't feel so good today we're not going to ride Green Edge they never ride um, <laughs> uh, so yeah then they're sort of like they got to judge it then they, they don't like you say they don't want to catch it too soon and, but they want to save guys for the lead out so you know hence you know Gripe will say he doesn't feel so good but then you know 3k to go suddenly the big lotto train comes over the top and he's got like six teammates leading him out so it's it's are you are you all in communic verbal communication here or is it amongst the riders or is it with the team cars yeah, or how's it how's it how's it's it amongst work? the riders but then you sort of you just blame a team car so you know if oh yeah mate i, I want to ride i want to help you mate i want to help you cav but you know they said i can't so sorry you know there's <laughs> a lot of that going on and the riders speak to each other a lot actually yeah and, and are there alliances formed? Is that part of the sport between, between teams? And are those formal things? Or are they between riders who same nationalities or mates or you know, people who like the same music? Or <laughs> you know, how, does it, how does it work out? Yeah, it's that, kinda, that cooperation? I'll always help Cav in the way, you know, I'll, if it's a sprint, I'll leave the door open for him. Or, you know, I'm not going to just chop him off. Or, and likewise with him, when you're coming into a mountain, you know, he's not going to just be boxing on with me and through me, you know. So um, there's that sort of respect. But... You know, we won't sort of just ride to help another team. Um, but, you know, it's, it's certainly that sort of uh, mutual respect that goes on. So you've got, you got your own set of rules. Um, I don't know, who knows about the rules, the website and now the book by the Velominati, I think they call themselves, a bunch of um, amateur riders who've got an awful lot of rules to live by, which I, yeah. think, I think they're a bit too many rules, to be honest. I think people, you know, as long as you're basically on your bike then that's a good thing, and everything else is sort of secondary. But you do have some yeah. rules. Um, and I, I, I pick up a few that, are, that I thought were interesting. Um, I'm going to probably forget some of these yeah. now, and I'm going but to break them. And <laughs> wa- waving to other riders mm. at, on out training. That seems like a nice thing to do. Yeah, for sure. If you see another rider coming the other way, it's a wave. But that's not an invitation to come join you. <laughs> Share your Welsh cake. Yeah, it could be for a bit, but, you know, for 10 minutes, not... Two and a half hours, like somebody did with me once. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> training bikes—they should be colourful, according to according to you. Yeah, the more colour, the more sort of variety and spice is always good. Yeah. I mean, do you have a strong opinion on bikes? I mean, colours clearly. Um, you're against triples on road bikes, which you don't mm. see very much. Okay for touring if you've got lots of panniers, presumably. Yeah. If you're me, um, disc brakes—that's something that's coming from the amateurs. To you, what do you think about that? Uh, have I put something about this? You haven't. Oh, no, it's, good. A, it's an omission. <laughs> you just got the sponsorship, have you? From no, that? no, no. I was just, uh, I change daily um, what I think. So 
Bernie used it in the Giro, I think, tested it for our team, and he said they were great, and it feels like you can stop a lot sooner, and etc., which would be really good. Um, in, in the rain, they're better, obviously. Yeah. For someone who's got, had as many crashes if, as you had, they care about these things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but when you're on the floor as well, and you've got a disc brake coming towards you, I'm mm. not sure how that might be either. No. So Maybe uh, Warren Bargill could have done with some disc brakes, but... <laughs> I'm not bitter. I've, I've let it go. <laughs> did, did, he, did, he, did he buy you a pair of uh, white Oakleys? No, he didn't, actually. I might invoice him. <laughs> but yeah. you, did, you did get some. Because it's much harder to pick you out without the white Oakleys. Yeah, yeah I was devastated. I was, uh, I'm glad we're talking about this now, because everybody always asks me about this. So I didn't get them back. I know. Oh. But, uh, on eBay somewhere, eBay.fr. <laughs> yeah, but luckily, saw my wife found a, a pair that we had at home, so oh, you're all, all right. good. Yeah, very good. Now, Team Kit, this is this is where you contradict the Velominati, who believe that you should only ride in Team Kit if you are in the team, and you should only wear the yellow jersey if you are the yellow, in the yellow jersey. You should mm. only wear the World Champions hoops if you are the World Champion. Yeah, um, I you think say. You don't talk about those, the, 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 the jerseys, but you say if you want to ride in the Team Sky kit because you like Team Sky, go for it. Yeah, 100%, unless you're a pro. So I shouldn't really ride around in Orica kit um, <laughs> or wear a yellow jersey or a rainbow. That might be a yeah, bit much. That's not such a good way to begin your negotiations no. for your next uh, contract. <laughs> well, they might be good sending a message to um, Brailsford and Co. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one thing I've definitely noticed is, you know, good sort of uh you know local amateurs you know who ride a lot they certainly frown upon that sort of thing um and i've oh, i've always been like nah go ahead just wear whatever you want show your support yeah and, well and about you, just guy, join your join your local club and wear their shirt yeah that? but whatever takes yeah. your fancy you know whatever yeah. and if it's sky you know hopefully that sort of filters down back to us and we get paid a little bit more so. <laughs> all, all on the royalties <laughs> Nicknames, and this is actually the story that sort of made the news this week, is you say that, uh, I'm going to find the actual piece here, is it? That do, well, you explain your, your take on nicknames. Basically, um, I don't get to watch much bike racing, so when I hear the commentators say stuff like Eddie the Boss, and <laughs> which nobody calls him Eddie the Boss apart from the commentators, um, that's just a bit wrong. I think the commentator I think there's okay. one that we have. We know. Oh, is it right. just the it's one? Just the one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be my fan then, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just not a fan of, of of nicknames. You know, like I wouldn't go up to say uh, Flintoff and be like, you know, all right, Freddie, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Actually, maybe I would. Hello, Andrew, or Mr. Flintoff. Yeah, or maybe just mate. Mate. Just keep it mate. simple. Yeah, yeah. Or just a nod. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Just a grunt. <laughs> the, la- the lazy cyclist. It's <laughs> a great chapter on being lazy. We can't cover it all, but um, this does bring us to the issue of um, of G, because that is mm. a nickname that you have received, um, one way or another. And by this rule, you cannot use someone's nickname unless you personally know them well or have been introduced to them as such. Mm. So that basically rules out most of the public in terms of referring to you as G. Is that is that is that it? That yeah, I didn't really think it. about it until I wrote there. Did you see the um, <laughs> Did you see the front cover of your book? Yeah, that was actually. <laughs> 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 Honestly, now I didn't even know about that. That was a 
I think that was a little surprise for me. I don't know, but yeah, I didn't know about that. What it does is the world according to G. Yeah. But anyway, you know now <laughs> that it's Geraint, so there you go. I think it's more just the effort of just trying to say Geraint so I can have a little laugh and then call <laughs> me G is fine. <laughs> very good, very good. So we'll open to some questions, um, and I, I, I've left lots of, lots of scope for people to ask questions. I haven't asked you what you're going to do next year and all that, so that's your job, everybody. Um, thanks for chatting to me. Now I'll hand over to the audience, and Andy, you've got the... Uh, the roving mic. I've, okay. I've got a mic if anybody okay, great. So wants hands, to ask a question. Hands up. Who's got a question? You, you pick them out, Jack. Yeah, over here, or straight in front of you. We've talked about the, the Grand Tours or the Tour de France, but can you talk a little bit about your season you had doing the Classics? Because I thought you had a phenomenal season. They are watching nearly all of them. And even if you didn't win, you were like in the top sort of three or four, working your butt off non-stop, and then still sort of recharge yourself for the Grand Tours. I thought it was magnificent. Could you talk Good a choice bit about of the words there. The classics were amazing. Um, they're races that I love. They're races that I've grown up wanting to do. Um, so to be there racing for the win is just amazing. And, and E3 was just um, such a great feeling. And, you know, to be in the break with Sagan and, and Steve Barr, who are, well, Sagan's obviously Sagan. You know, he does, you know, everyone knows Sagan. And Steve Barr's one of the other, another great sort of one-day rider. So... To win that was amazing. To go then to to Ghent Wevelgem and which was, it just looked it just looked stupid when I crashed that day. You know, because on the TV you can't see wind, can you? There wasn't any trees, and I just sort of just rode off the road and crashed, which just looked stupid. But <laughs> that day, I'm telling you now, it was just unbelievable. Like you know, Gert Stegmans, who's 95 plus kilos, got blown from like the right hand side over a three lane road, took out Edvald, Eddie the boss. <laughs> took him out, he hit a, hit a pole and broke his collarbone, Eddie did um, that day was just immense but anyway, yeah, so third there was just great and great and um, yeah, the only disappointment for me was, was Flanders, well and Roubaix really the, the two biggest ones and um, you know, Flanders just didn't really go to plan um, I really wanted to, to win there or at least be on the podium and uh, I think I, end, well, I was 14th I was in the group sort of racing for fifth and then it just turned into a horrible sort of attack, sit up, attack, sit up in the last few K. And yeah, and that day just didn't really have it. Whereas, you know, E3 was sort of like I was a junior again. It was like, you know, could do whatever I wanted. You know, I could attack and then just sit I mean, on. You totally animated that race. For, well, mm. 38 kilometers out from the finish, it was your attack and they managed to get onto your, onto your wheel. And then how did you play that one? It was... Because um, that, was, that was, you know, up against quality opponents we were all thinking well he's just going to ride away from them because we want him to <laughs> but, uh, but you know what was going on in your mind i was um probably from like 20k out i, I, I thought right i'm just going to go i just got to do it just attack um and i was trying to think of the best place and i was thinking well you know we got some corners with about 3k to go so try and hit them before that and i was like trying to suss out who was stronger out of the two and it looked like steve i was and but I wasn't, I just thought, surely they're just bluffing, you know, it's Sagan, he can't be that tired, you know. Um, and that's when you, you start doubting yourself a bit, and that's where it becomes, you know, it's, it's just as much mental as it is physical, and it's just having that confidence to really just go for it. And, um, so, yeah, I just thought around 4K, I was like, I'll make sure that I'm uh, on Sagan's wheel. So once Steve has done his turn and moved to the left and started slowing down, that's when I was just going to go, just, you know, just commit, head down, full gas, and and, and go, and... That's what exactly what happened. Look did, back you, did you look back? I did after uh, after I don't know how long it was, but 
sort of went for maybe 30 seconds, looked back and saw I had a gap and saw that they were just sort of, you know, Steve was coming and Sagan had already gone, so it was kind of, yeah, this is good. And then on the radio, it was like, you know, 11 seconds, like 13 seconds, 16, and you're like, oh, this is amazing. And then it wasn't until like a cake to go then when it was, I don't know what the gap was then, but it was big and I was just like, this is it, I've, I've won it. And it was just... Uh, that that those feelings are just like they're just like I don't know what I'm going to do when I retire because it's just amazing and uh, well I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't win again to be honest but <laughs> <laughs> but those feelings are just amazing and um, yeah it was just to win that race and I won my weight in beer actually which came out handy in the wedding a couple of months ago or a month ago um, four weeks today it flies man yeah. uh, going to be retired and fat before I know it and, and cl- classics <laughs> next year I want to do Flanders. I'm not sure about anything else, really. I want to go down the stage racing route. I want, um, I want to go to the tour. I want to target the tour and, and be a good uh, backup GC guy for Froomey. Um, still ride for him and do everything for him, um, if he's obviously the stronger, which he probably will be, obviously. But, yeah, so I'll, I'll do everything for him, but still be thinking about myself that first half of the race and uh, not do too much, not do as much as I did this year and, you know, leave it to the other boys a bit and... Uh, yeah, and then, and then hopefully that means, you know, in the big days, if the team's strong, that means my job might only come in the last three, two, three K rather than maybe the last five or seven. And that means, you know, I won't get, well, you know, the chances of being dropped are a bit less. So, um, yeah, hopefully I can sort of hang on to a little position myself. There's a question towards the front. Yeah, question about the GB performance when Cav won the World Championship. You know what the plan was. We knew what the plan was. Every other team did, but they couldn't stop you. Can you say something about how that happened? And secondly, would you be prepared to tell us what happened when you looked around and he wasn't there? Oh yeah, um, that was uh, that day was just incredible as well. Um, like you say, everybody knew what we were going to do. Um, the course obviously lent itself to to that type of race, and um, and obviously the, the the other teams there. There was quite a lot of teams that, that wanted to sprint also. Um, you know, there was only a, a few that probably didn't, but um, yeah, we were just—it was just amazing. The I didn't do anything. I felt bad afterwards. I was like, I didn't get to ride. You know, I didn't get to leave Cav out. I just rode around behind the boys, and then, you know, Cav won the sprint. Um, not a bad job, really. Um, but uh, I think you know, me being the lead-out man sort of gave the other guys that confidence to just leave it all on the road and and um everyone committed 100% um and we you know riding for GB is certainly a special feeling uh Cavs a really good mate uh Steve Cummins and it's great when we all sort of come back together and we have a real bond and um we really do everything for each other and that day couldn't have gone any better obviously um but like you say when I look back with oh I must have been we went in t- I remember we were on the right hand side and it was a right hand corner um, I was following Stannard, and Stannard sort of, he he can go through a gap. He, for a big boy, he can get through a small gap, and uh, he was just committed. I followed him, come out of the corner, look back, and I just couldn't see Cav, and I was, it's being recorded, so I can't swear, but it, was, it wasn't good. I started drifting back, and then maybe, he was maybe, maybe sixth, seventh behind Matt Goss, who was uh, one of the pre-race favourites, and it was kind of like, well, I'll sit behind him for a bit. And then he got to like 300 metres maybe to go. And it's like, well, I, the Aussies are leading out now. He's got three, four Aussies leading out. Matt Goss, just leave him to it. And 
luckily he, he, he sprinted and he won and it was just an amazing feeling and it was certainly the team really felt like we all won um, which is probably the main thing that's changed in the British public as well I think everybody sort of knows that now um, understands that it's, it's a team race it's not just individual winning it's the whole team it's like Sars Nan Nine from North Wales she used to say to me when Cav was in the team in 2012 she was like you were leading with 200 metres to go. Like, you were beating Cav. Why didn't you just carry on? <laughs> it's like, yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll try that next time. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that whole thing certainly uh, developed over the years. Was she um, coaching Chris Froome in uh, 2012? <laughs> she probably was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucky you had Sean Yates there to um, bring <laughs> it all back under control. Um, another question. Um, Garrett, um, Mr G. Um, I want to ask you about um, bikes, and hopefully about you. Um, you know how how important is the bike in so far as you know? If uh, you know, I go to the, the, the bike show, and uh, I mean, do you get bike envy? I mean, when we go to, I went to the bike show, and you know, like you see the pinner and there for six, seven, seven, six, seven thousand pounds, mm. and then you look at the latest Trek bike, and it's kind of all aero with you know everything's inboard and you know, do you, do you get bike envy? How important is the bike? Or is it, you know, are they all the same at that kind of level? This is a question I can really slip up on now. Could get a big fine in the post. Um, no, I think uh, the bike envy bit, I'm not really much of a bike geek. To me, bike's a bike, and I'm pretty happy with, with well, I'm really happy with Pinarello. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh Obviously, you look at a nice your bike and it's like, oh, yeah, that's nice, this is nice. But I think uh, one thing that the, the wind tunnel guys actually told me was, you know, the, the majority of uh, the aero-ness stuff <laughs> is, uh, is mainly the body and the bike is, is a bit less. So I think when it comes to actually racing, you know, there's a weight limit. I think it's 6.8, so bikes can't be lighter than that. And I think wheels probably have just as much as an impact as the frame. But, um, you know, I think it's limited, really. I think it's more with, well, your head and your legs, really. The, does the colour of the bike affect the speed in any uh, way? Well, if you're on a night, like, to be fair, that the bike we ride, that Pinero, it genuinely is really nice. I love the whole just black, slick sort of look. And, uh, you know, when you're on something that looks good and, you know, you know, your kit feels good and you look at the other boys and it's like, yeah. What about that suspension thing that you had? Are you going to ride that again? Was that, was that all right or was it... It was good for Roubaix. I wouldn't ride it for. It did for Roubaix. Yeah, I wouldn't ride it for Flanders again. I didn't really like it then, but um, yeah, I'd certainly. It made a big difference on the on Roubaix. Final question, or oh, there isn't a final question. There is here. Good, excellent. Tomorrow, what are you doing tomorrow? The question was, what are you doing tomorrow? I'll be. Uh, I'll probably have an omelette for breakfast, and I'll go out and do. I don't know what the weather's like. What's the weather like tomorrow? Brilliant, 20 degrees. Come up to Abergavenny. <laughs> I'll, I'll just go on my bike and, uh, yeah, just get, I don't know, three, four hours in. Nice. You and could Abergavenny and back. Yeah, I might Twice, do that. probably. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'll just enjoy it. Just uh, enjoy riding my bike and clean up the diet, really. So, you know, no, no burgers and stuff, no alcohol. Um, saying that, it's Luke Rose Stag on Saturday, so... Uh, I'll get back on it for five days and then, you know. But yeah, it's, pr it's pretty much sort of November's sort of 50-50 sort of life outside of cycling plus cycling and you kind of mix between the two, you know. 
And then the deeper you get into the season, the more it becomes purely about racing and, you know, lifestyle just goes on hold for a bit. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, actually. I feel really unhealthy now. I've had maybe a month of, you know, eating burgers and cheese and pizza and beer and everything. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to cleaning up now. Yeah. Have another Welsh cake while you're, while you're, while you're there. <laughs> I, do you mind if I do? No, no, help yourself. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we were delighted to, to, to get Garen Thomas. We've been, we've been trying to get a, a top-rate rider for, for so, so long. We put these tickets on sale, and this was our fastest ever selling event. Can you please join me in thanking Garen Thomas for giving us a talk tonight? Thank you. I was in conversation with Geraint Thomas and his book, The World of Cycling According to G, is published by Quercus. That's it for the bike show today. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Goodbye. <laughs>